0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com.
2: Hey there, HRN listeners. This is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears. I know that news about COVID-19 and the coronavirus has made a lot of people nervous about getting sick. This collective unease has already had a big impact on our restaurant and food communities, especially in New York's Chinatowns. We hope that now more than ever, our listeners will join us in supporting restaurants and the hospitality industry at large. Many of the restaurants we love are small, independent businesses. That means that even one or two bad weeks can put them in jeopardy of cutting staff, limiting hours, or even having to close for good. As long as we're still able, we should go out to eat and support our favorite restaurants. I think it's also great to remember that hospitality professionals are really good at hygiene and food safety practices. Long before there were guides all over the news about how to properly wash your hands, they were already experts at hygiene. Guests' health is tantamount to successful hospitality in any restaurant. And even if you don't want to go out, you can still support restaurants by ordering delivery, buying gift cards, and giving them some extra love on social media. What better way to handle a crisis than by supporting those in our own community? If we don't support them now, they might not be there when this crisis is over. Join HRN in supporting restaurants during this time, especially our friends in Chinatowns around the country. Thanks for listening.
3: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation, for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts, I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Hilary Reinsberg, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Review Platform, The Infatuation and Zagat. In today's episode, we'll talk to Hillary about how The Infatuation is bringing back the Zagat Guide, COVID-19's impact on the restaurant industry, and we'll hear Hillary's Julia moment. Stay with us, we'll be right back. First, a disclaimer HRN Studio is temporarily closed, so we're recording this episode remotely may sound a little different than usual, but we're grateful to have technology that allows the show to go on. As always, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. As of today's taping, on March 23rd, the COVID-19 virus continues to spread across the world, sickening thousands and causing millions to shelter in place and practice social distancing. It's an unprecedented event, not really experienced since the 1918 flu pandemic, Which is a little before my time. Julia was a child then and she came of age between the two world wars. And it's not often highlighted that Julia's tenure in France, which is so often romanticized, was actually just after the end of World War II and soon after her service in the OSS. So it's striking when you look at Julia's remembrances that she rarely dwelt on the hardships, shortages, and what she might have done without. Her focus was on helping people discovering other cultures, and sharing experiences. Even during war, Julia found opportunity. Amidst today's uncertainty and adversity, I hope Julia's sense of optimism, as well as her devotion to the value of cooking, to nourish our bodies and souls, might help us to get through. As a program that strives to introduce you to the best and brightest in the food world, something Julia really valued, we recognize it's an extremely difficult time for chefs and restaurant owners and their staff. At the Foundation, we are already thinking about the ways in which we can help. Just as Julia was committed to lifting up chefs, the profession, and supporting great dining, so too is the Foundation. Someone who shares our perspective is native New Yorker Hillary Rheinsberg, the editor-in-chief of The Infatuation, and Zagat, a BuzzFeed journalist who transitioned into the food world as employee number one at restaurant review platform The Infatuation, Hillary has overseen its editorial expansion across the U.S. and into the U.K. In 2018, The Infatuation acquired legendary restaurant guide Zagat from Google. Hillary is leading the relaunch of that trusted brand in a new incarnation for the modern 20s. This includes the return of the Burgundy Bible to print and a new editorial platform called Zagat Stories. She joins us today at a crucial moment in the restaurant world to give us the infatuation's perspective and bring us up to speed on plans for Zagat. Welcome to the podcast, Hillary.
4: Thank you so much.
3: So before we talk about our new, relatively grim reality, just give us a primer. You can almost assume like maybe it was a month ago, just so people who may have not already used the infatuation or heard about it kind of understand uh, what it does, where it comes from, how it stands apart from other restaurant review sites.
4: The the Infatuation is a, you know, first and foremost, a restaurant discovery platform, and it helps you find the best restaurants in your area. Um, We write everything from a situational perspective. Um, So whether you need you know, a great place for a date, a great place for a group, um, a great place for, um, a certain cuisine. We always write with that in mind and we create guides and reviews primarily, um, with that in mind, um, and rate and review restaurants kind of always thinking about that. And, and there's always really a sense of humor, um, and levity to our reviews. Um, that's not to say, you know, they're, they're, they're very critically formed, but we do uh, we do bring a sense of humor we want them to be entertaining so sort of an entertaining way to discover restaurants uh, for whatever you may need
3: so tell us about because on the one hand, I feel like oh there are lots of restaurant review sites which actually when you look around isn't exactly true, but it feels that way so what was it what was the gap in the market that it seemed like the infatuation and its founders like kind of sought to fulfill or did it did they just start doing it and people they found people needed it or wanted it.
4: The Infatuation was founded by uh, our two co-founders, Chris Stang and Andrew Steinthal, and they were working in the music business at Atlantic Records and Warner Brother Records, and they were taking out artists constantly. They were the guys in their group of friends who were always telling people where to eat, and they realized that there just wasn't really a resource that spoke to them the way they were speaking to their friends, which was, again, situational, relatable, and entertaining. So they really started writing reviews almost in the way that you might Write, write an email to a friend um and that's what we always tell our writers to do as we've scaled has been how would you talk to a friend about this place and how how do you how do we talk to people like humans um sort of without some of the errors that i think you see in some food writing where uh, a lot of big words get used uh that people don't necessarily relate to um you know we we believe in in great editing and great writing um and believe that so it also doesn't necessarily have to be so flowery. So it's it's sort of uh, written to you. People often say, you know, when we say how would you describe the infatuation voice, um, we say and we often hear people say that they feel like it's their cool friend talking to them, their funny friend talking to them who knows restaurants well. Uh, we definitely want to feel like we're your friend in your city.
3: Well, I was just going to say that, yeah, it sounds like you're trying to hold the position of trusted friend. And I do know sometimes you ask a friend, like, where's a great place for brunch by the beach on Sunday? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And then you're like, who do I ask now? Is that sort <laughs> exactly. of where you would then turn to the infatuation when your trusted friend is not being useful?
4: That's exactly it. Um, and, and really any situation from high end to low end to grabbing lunch to your, you know, birthday or anniversary dinner. Um, we really cover it all and, uh, and hope we can kind of be there for you and entertain you along the way.
3: And so you've got sort of when you go to this website, there's kind of like two categories, right? There's like the restaurants that you're the restaurants, the cities that you're covering in depth. And then there are also city guides. Can you just tell us about how it's structured?
4: Absolutely. We have about a dozen or so cities where we have a full time writer, uh, at least one or more um, who are full time professionally doing this um day in and day out they are going to restaurants and are part of our full-time team and those are that's those cities uh a dozen around a dozen cities where we do that um and then below you know we we've also found that our existing audience and, and new audiences also want information about other places they they may go um, so we have a lot of content um in other cities ranging from you know one guide to a certain city, to you know, a handful of let's say five guides. I think we have to New Orleans to help you find restaurants in that city. So kind of the same, you know, the the same same idea, same purpose, same same voice and style. Um, just maybe a range of sort of how many restaurants we've covered, um, and we hope to expand to more of them. But of course, it's uh it's tough to 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 sort of be everywhere at once. So um so we you know are doing that by creating individual guides in cities where we haven't sort of um put down, put down full-time roots yet.
3: And was the origin for the original list sort of driven by the music industry or, or was there a different sort of methodology to what, what cities have sort of already gotten covered?
4: Um. No. It's, I mean, sure. I th- I think there are there are probably some roots in the music industry, perhaps. But I think it really comes down to um what cities are are really the biggest um biggest cities in the U.S. For the most part is where we focused um that have exciting food scenes there. Um. So you know we really started New York. We started with New York, L.A., Chicago, and San Francisco um, really with those being the biggest cities, uh, and then the biggest cities in the U.S. Um, and there, there are some big, some, some cities in the U.S. that we still, uh, have a lot more work to do in, um, no doubt, but we, you know, Houston and Dallas, I think being probably the biggest cities where we don't have, um, to, to a full-time presence yet, but we're working on it. Um, and we launched in the U.K., uh, and a couple years ago, and um, have been sort of building that business there as well with a lot of success.
3: Got it. So let's obviously what's looming today on so many people's minds, maybe everyone's mind, is COVID-19. And certainly the pandemic has one of the most immediate effects of what's been going on is that it's had such a horrendous impact on the restaurant industry, on chefs and people who work in restaurants. And given that that's really the devoted focus of, of the infatuation, what are your writers doing in terms of adapting their coverage? And also, what are they feeding back to you kind of directly from their sources about the impact?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's a, it's a couple of different things. Of course, we've had to completely change um, the type of coverage that we've done in the past um, week or 10 days that this, um, pandemic has really taken hold in the U S and in, and in London as well. Um, so really the, you know, one of the first things we did was adapt to covering all of the restaurants that are doing delivery and takeout, um, and doing as much coverage of the, as, of those as we possibly can to, you know, serve our audience, but certainly to also help support those restaurants that are, um, in, in really, really tough times right now and support those workers, um, And so we're doing a lot of that published, uh, I think somewhere around 25 guides across our cities last week, um, covering all of the, the new option, you know, everything from sort of restaurants that had never done delivery before to, uh, a lot of restaurants doing things, doing things around alcohol delivery. And, um, we found that our audience certainly, certainly wants to, um, certainly wants to find food to order at home. They also want to find ways to support restaurants, Um, so we've also set up a page detailing, um, some of the ways that we think people can help, which is everything from ordering delivery to supporting the GoFundMe pages that a lot of restaurants have set up to, um, gift cards to ordering merch, um, and, you know, as well as some of the, some of the larger coalitions and organizations, um, you know, and we've also been working on, um, building, you know, our, our brand has always been based around community. Um, and in the apps, you know, that's, that's existed on social media and in real life. Um, and so we've been doing some, uh, some community work as well. We did a, you know, virtual happy hour, virtual wine school, and, um, also using those time, those, those platforms as a, as a way to get together, but also to, I think people, you know, people are looking to us to help them understand ways that they can help support the industry. And, um, we're definitely kind of giving information through some of those virtual happy hours and things like that about to, for people to share ideas about how they can help and how they can support and how they can, uh, help restaurants get through this time. Um, so so that's kind of what we're doing and and it you know our our whole editorial strategy from day 1 has been really thinking about um has been about community and thinking about what people want and what um and what we find now is pe- people people want to help they want to order food in um and they want community. So so we're offering those things sort of helping, you know, continuing to serve our audience and also really making sure uh that we that we're helping out the industry that you know that our whole community is built around, um, which we all feel really strongly about.
3: Yeah, I know it. I was curious if you've heard different um, feedback from your writers or, or articles that you've published that this kind of dilemma between staying open to do delivery and takeout, both to you know help people who need that and to keep businesses running, and those who've just decided full stop to to close, and how restaurants and chefs or owners are kind of making that decision because it seems to be um, at least here in london like a little bit all over the map and so you know you start out as a consumer wanting to oh we're going to get takeout and help our favorite restaurant and then find that actually they've decided to close have has there been much dialogue on, on that
4: I think you're just you're just right that it's all over the map. Um, I think that restaurants, a lot of restaurants are set up in really different ways and some have an existing delivery business that's a really robust part of their business um, already. That's um, something that clearly already makes financial sense for them. Um, other restaurants, I think it's been, you know, certainly a harder adaptation. And I think restaurants are going to have to, of course, make the choice about whether it makes sense for them. I, I don't think there's, I haven't heard there being sort of a, a complete answer, but I've heard I've heard both sides that it's helping restaurants stay in business, and others who feel that whether for the safety of their employees or kind of the viability of the finances, that um, just closing um, completely is the best option for them. It, it does feel like it's kind of restaurant by restaurant, depending on the way their business is set up um, and sort of what makes sense for them. Mm.
3: And I mean, I still feel like it's quite early days. It feels like forever in the sense of like how much has changed day to day. And then you look back and wait, be like, oh, it's not even been like two two weeks since the whole world completely changed. But so it's like both recent and feeling very long. And it's still sadly very early, I think, in all the change. But have you guys started thinking about what you foresee as the longer term impact of the the pandemic and maybe the longer term is actually more a shorter term impact followed by a medium one. And the longer is really hard to imagine, but do you have some thoughts on what you're kind of imagining is, is, going to happen?
4: I think, I think it's so hard to say right now. We don't really know how long restaurants will be closed and when it will be safe for them to reopen. Um, I think that it's, but regardless, even with what's happened so far, it's, it's really devastating for, um, for the restaurant community for restaurant workers who make up, you know, a huge number of people um in the US and the UK and all over the world. Um and I think we're realizing how, you know, I think a lot of people are pre- perhaps learning for the, you know, um in ways they may not have before sort of um how the industry works and uh how volatile it can be and how precarious it can be even without these um you know, even, even beforehand. Um, so I think no matter what, it's going to be devastating for the industry and, um, we're all trying to find ways that we can help. Um, that said, I think that there's, there's certainly, um, a strong feeling among a lot of the things that I've read and a lot of the, you know, um, words from kind of leading restaurateurs in the industry, um, who are saying there needs to be some help. Uh, and this really applies more. I, this, you know, this is, a big thing in the U S right now is there needs to be something done beyond sort of, um, grassroots grassroots can go so far, but there does need to be, you know, restaurants need to be included, um, from a governmental level in a stimulus package, um, in, in what's done. So I think that that's the feeling is there needs to be activism around that as well as, um, the GoFundMe pages and some of these coalitions that are doing amazing work. There does need to be, um, some kind of really federal um, or statewide uh, intervention that, that comes from this as well um, for the industry to really survive and thrive in the future.
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's such a sudden shock to something that is so woven into the fabric of American life and, and worldwide and has, if anything, been been expanding in terms of the number of restaurants and the amount people are eating out and all of that, but that this sh- shock crisis has really shown where there are a lot of very vulnerable holes that I think a lot of chefs, particularly New York chefs, with the changes in the wages and rent had started saying, hey, wait a second, this isn't sustainable. And now it's just the whole curtain is pulled back on where there were all these sort of legacy structures that really were either not fair or not sustainable. And possible, do you think that that's possibly a good future outcome of being in some ways, to the extent that enough restaurants survive, hitting a reset button on even the the structure of the industry
4: yeah i think i I think that um, that's certain certainly a fair point, and um you know I think people as i said have have been learning a lot more about the industry if they haven 't worked in it beforehand um um i think most people have ha- do know someone who's worked in a restaurant or worked worked <laughs> worked in a restaurant or has worked in a restaurant themselves that's obviously super common but i think still um it's it's illustrating to a lot of people really how this industry works and as you said where some of those holes are so um hopefully there is you know there is a greater awareness around that and um and an action taken to to help things stabilize but i think right now it's um it's just so hard to predict exactly sort of what will happen and um and where we'll end up
3: <laughs> A lot depends on the timeline too. you know mm-hmm. some you know it's kind of one of those things like if a restaurant was already just barely making it, they may not survive. Whereas a restaurant that had deeper coffers or was doing was on more level footing might be able to last two months, but can they last four? can they last six? And we just don't know yes. So in terms of coverage, have you guys already started thinking about, obviously you you said you're talking about covering more delivery and takeaway recommendations and stuff as this kind of keeps going and probably in more places leads to more restriction. Have you thought about, you were talking about the community and the things that you were thinking of doing of other coverage. Is that kind of the thinking right now as you would look for more of those ways for content that's community-based?
4: Yeah, certainly. You know, we're we're taking it day by day. I think um it's it's been a really interesting adjustment when you 're when you 're of course used to planning things out that 's getting a lot harder to do right now for us from a from a content perspective but we 're you know well, we're we're just thinking uh, we 're trying to be human we 're trying to be transparent in what we do, trying to support the industry so we 're taking it day by day um, and I think even a week ago or ten days ago or even four days ago um, it would have been so hard to predict exactly where we are now so we are taking it day by day, trying to make smart decisions, trying to help um, and, you know, working as hard as we possibly can to do that. So but certainly um, doing more. Um, we're, we're lucky to have such a strong community of people who want to engage with us. Um, and we've seen even if we're not sort of providing them the, the exact same thing that they're used to, they seem to still want to engage. They're turning to us to figure out how to help to get recommendations about where to get takeout so uh we'll keep building on that and uh talking to our audience and and talking to the you know larger restaurant community about what they want to see from us and kind of keep going from there and trying to come up with creative stuff um to help to for for people to to be entertained and have fun at home um all of it we're you know we're we're uh we're open to ideas we have dozens of people in the company who are, who are sending ideas all day um, across all departments, you know, or everyone from our, from our engineers to our events team um, to, our, to our sales and partnerships team have been contributing ideas to what we can do, and it's really been a team effort there. So, I'm, uh, you know, I'm excited about the work we've done so far. I'm pr- proud of it, and, uh, you know, I, I have no doubt that we'll figure out um, sort of how to keep going in some way.
3: Well, on that note of optimism, we will come back after the break and talk more optimistically about other things in store. So, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk to Hillary about the Infatuation's revival of the Zagat guide. Stay with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S. grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. US Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully US-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com.
3: Welcome back. We're talking to Hilary Reinsberg, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Review Platform, The Infatuation, and Zagat. So Hilary, I, I was actually a big Zagat guide user in several different cities I lived in. And then last day I lived in LA, I was even a regular contributor. And I think it's so neat what you talked about, about the Infatuation's voice of the writing as your friend. Because in some ways, Zagat was quite storied. It was for foodies. It tended to focus on the higher-end restaurants. It it usually didn't focus on low—it did in some cities, but mostly it was sort of for finer dining. But it also was very humorous and, and really reflected its users' voices. And I think in that way, one of the reasons people who used it found it so helpful. But then so much has changed since those days when avid diners relied on the slim red books and then google sidelined it so what on earth made the infatuation decide that they wanted to revive it
4: you know i'm so glad that you mentioned the um the humor and and i think it's something that some people remember but not everyone remembers if they haven't picked up as a guy as a guy guide in a while that there is a, there is a lot of humor and voice uh to the guides um and And I think a diversity of restaurants you know it certainly evolved over time, um yeah, but about uh two and a half years ago, we um sort of got a call from Google asking if we would be interested in in acquiring the brand um they had held it for about seven years um and we felt, you know, we felt for a long time that there was an opportunity, even with the infatuation, to create something that was, as I said, we have the strong community, um, but our content on theinfatuation.com is written by, um, by our staff, um, and that's the perspective that we take there. But we've known that there is a huge community of people who didn't have a great platform to contribute to. They weren't finding what they need, what they, you know, they weren't, like finding that the other user-generated platforms out there were serving them they, in the type of community and the way that they wanted to do and they wanted to contribute to something else. You know, and Zagat was always uh, historically driven by the community voting, uh, you know, voting and, and writing in their ratings. Um, And so we saw a great opportunity to combine the two brands, to combine our, the infatuation brand, you know, which has been around for about 10 years with with Zagat, which has been around for 40 years. Um, And we actually thought, although different, slightly different in approach, I actually think, we actually felt that the two brands were really similar in spirit, um, in terms of being sort of restaurant reviews for the people. Um, And... We sort of are in a lot of ways. Our writers are people who are like very much the community that contributed to this guide. So it's really just two different approaches. Um, so we've been doing a lot with the brand since um, the first. The first sort of uh, the big thing that we did um, this fall um, was was bring back the New York City book. One of the first things we heard from people would they would say, "I miss the book. I want to carry it around with me." Whatever else you do, I'm on board for whatever you turn this thing into, but like, give us the book. And so we just said, okay, well, let's do the book. Um, and we thought it was a great way to honor the 40th anniversary and really sort of begin that relaunch phase of um, Zagat. But um, I do think it was important to show people that we were kind of good stewards of the brand by doing the book and doing it right. Uh, you know, I edited the pages of that book with a red pencil, like all summer. Um, <laughs> With, with a lot of care. Um, we took it really, really seriously. Uh, and I hope that that, I hope and, and think that that did mean a lot to people. Um, so that that was kind of the first thing. Um, and, you know, the big thing long-term is we're, we're building, our, our product and engineering team is building right now a platform that will allow people to contribute, um, you know, a community-based, user-generated is the term that gets used a lot. Um, platform, website, um, to, for people to review restaurants, um, themselves and sort of build the, a digital version of, of what the Zagat paper book was. Um, so that's in the works, um, which we're really excited about. Um, and we also, about a month ago, launched a new site called Zagat Stories that is a place for, um, chefs, restaurateurs, and people in hospitality to tell their stories, um, in a first person manner. So, um, that of course, uh, we didn't, we didn't, I didn't speak about the content that we've been creating there over the past, uh, week, but it's, you know, that stuff's been really amazing. Um, so we've been, uh, so just some background, uh, we launched, you know, with pieces, from Eric Pear and Mike Solomonov and some, some really um, names sort of bigger and smaller throughout the industry with interesting stories to tell um, covering all elements of their life from Mike Solomonov's addiction to uh, a woman named Katie, Katie Button in Asheville talking about sort of uh, motherhood in the restaurant and, and policies around that. So all different types of things. Um, but over the past week, um, our editor, Chris Mooney has been talking to dozens of people across the industry about how they're coping right now. Um, and we produce, you know, published, published a, a ton of posts last week, um, hearing from all different people in the industry about how they are coping right now and dealing right now and, um, the things they're feeling and the activism that they're doing. So that's been a really big part of our, um, the content we've been creating right now as well. And, um, I think we'll... You know, it's, it's an interesting thing for, for a part of Zagat that's only been around for a month, but um, the, the brand name Zagat having this long history, I think, um, has, uh, and hopefully the affiliation with the infatuation, which has become a trusted brand as well, has really, uh, you know, made it a place that people do want to come tell their stories.
3: Well, and I was just thinking, I, I read uh, one of the Zagat stories about, I don't, I'm probably butchering her name, but a chef called Carla Hoyas, and mm-hmm. her her tenure, it, which was a great piece that came out maybe a week ago, and... Before things were maybe as bad as they are now in the States. But it was kind of a mixture of a profile of her as a chef and her career and as a female chef and what that was like and working with Chef Jose Andres. But then it was also about her, how she got involved with his charity, World Central Kitchen, and their, you know, chefs for relief work. And I thought it was a really wonderful mixture of personal, timely background. And so I, I thought that was, uh, fascinating and and it it, it, ironically just as like one part of your business is sort of in kind of a strange like how do you review restaurants when they're all shutting Zagat stories is a way to 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 really delve into like how is this impacting everyone in in an industry where usually people do it for love and not money anyway so what are the implications of that
4: yeah absolutely um as you said there have been um there have been a lot of different stories and we've been um you know, some that we've been working on for a while. Carla, Carla's story um, had been in the works, um, had been certainly in the works beforehand, um, but there ended up being um, this great story, um, you know, and the work that Jose Andres has been doing has been so amazing. It's actually um, one of, we are actually, um, together with the Infatuation and Zagat, uh have a um, have a page to, to raise money um, for World Central Kitchen, which is one of the, um, organizations that we identified um, that we are going to try to help raise money for in terms of what they're doing across the country right now, in terms of, uh, as you said, the Chefs for America project and distributing meals and um, mapping some of the feeding efforts in different cities where um, there's food insecurity right now. So, um, but we've been hearing all different stories. You know, we had um, the owners of Olmstead in Brooklyn, which is a really beloved uh, Brooklyn restaurant, talking about. Um, the work that they were doing to advocate for um, the delay of the six state sales tax payments and their sort of work. And so we've heard from different people who are, you know, who are dealing with the individual ramifications of what's happening in their restaurants, but also people who are, um, organizing together, and creating coalitions, um, lobbying the government, um, raising money for workers sort of as groups. So we're hearing from all different sides. Um, we're hearing all different sides of the story. There are a clearly endless number of stories. We're trying to tell as many of them as we can right now.
3: Hmm. So I was struck by when you were talking about the, the difference is between the infatuation's approach and what you find there, and what Zagat represents, and Zagat being sort of a really early form of crowdsourced information before there was even the internet, and the infatuation being more curatorial and editorial. And so, how do you find how do you reconcile the two? I was kind of thinking like, well, do we trust our peers more? Or do we trust experts more? Or do we need both in different situations?
4: Yeah, we certainly think that there's there's a case for both and that they can be really great companions to each other. Certainly don't think that restaurant discovery in general is a zero-sum game. We certainly hear from people who say, I turn to the infatuation for everything. I always use you guys, you know, but people are also exploring all different channels. People are sending each other recommendations on Instagram. Uh, people are, you know, using their own community networks to hear things. So we think that um, we've our community wants, you know, wants a voice and a say in this and they want to contribute as well. So, and it also allows us to cover more places um, and more restaurants across the world um, by having that community element. So, yeah, we, we think there's a, you know, I certainly as a, as a consumer feel like um, that together you can kind of get uh, a really great picture of sort of what's out there. So um, we don't see them in competition with each other. We see them as, as compatible and Right now, from an editorial standpoint, they're really operating independently. Um, but that's not to say, you know, our, our infatuation editorial team in general is not, um, I've, I've, I'm working across both brands, but in general, our infatuation writers and cities are not the ones writing the Zagat, you know, are not, we're not, our New York staff writers, we're not the ones writing the Zagat book. Um, we had a, a separate team for that. So um, right now they're sort of operating independently, but we certainly see, you know, hope kind of like from a product Level down the line, there are there are ways to think about integration, but um, we want to sort of let the Zagat the NewsGat platform uh, develop over the coming months um, and sort of sort of go from there and see see how understand how people are using it and uh, but yeah we think we think they can work really well together
3: and is the new york print book the first of many or is it kind of like a prototype or special one and you're going to remain pretty virtual moving forward for as you roll, roll it out
4: um it's a good question i don't think we have all the answers yet um we you know um clearly right now with everything so up in the air and changing it's it's hard to say um we what we are doing is launching the survey similar to the survey that we operated in new york which produced the content that filled the book um of course the book got written it you know it gets edited into the blurbs but the the initial sort of comments and ratings that people submit came from that survey and we're now um, running the survey in a couple of other cities um la's is you know uh ran la's and uh some other cities will be coming soon so you will see that survey um you know i think we're still discussing what the best um, most efficient, most useful way to to put that content back out into the world. Um, it'll certainly feed the new platform. Um, and, you know, books, um, paper books are um, something we certainly like to explore, but can't give a definite yes on that.
3: And are you keeping the – are you duplicating – maybe duplicating is the wrong word – keeping the same kind of ratings thing? Because I always thought – Zagat had such a strange, you know, unique rating system that, like, was different than any other restaurant review, and it was quite technical. But then, if you're a regular user, you sort of got used to it, and you knew that, like, a tw- I mean, in what other world is 26 a great number? But in Zagat <laughs> sure. world, right, 26, 28, ooh. Yeah. And so you learned what it means, or what are you – how are you guys adapting that?
4: Yeah, we did, we did use those ratings in the um – in the New York guide. Um, it's not exactly how they work in the survey and, um, our product team is really researching now what, um, what makes the most sense there. Um, we're, we're figuring it out. I think, um, you're right. The 30 point probably doesn't, uh, isn't, is isn't something that makes sense to everyone, but also, you know, does hold, does hold value for people. So, um, so, um, you know, sort of once that product is released to the public, I think, you know, You'll see you'll see what we've come up with but um but we did use the 30 point scale in the book.
3: Yeah. Well, it does allow for more nuance cuz obviously the difference between awarding a restaurant four stars or five stars is, you know, a really big deal, but it also is, you know, definitely. But then also I thought I think the way they did it, there 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 wasn't as much difference between a 26 and a 28 as might, you know, they all sort of I don't know clustered. And so maybe it's all the same thing.
4: Yeah, you know, on the infatuation, we've used uh, a 10-point scale with decimals, Um, only one decimal point. And I think it's, it's all about, it's just really all about the community learning the system. And I think our audience, like they know what an eight means, uh, especially those who've been reading for a long time. Um, They're like, oh, I only go to restaurants. You know, we hear people from on the infatuation audience say like, oh, I I only go when you guys rated like a, a something or above. Um, And they say like, oh, it's an 8.5 in the infatuation. You know, that's going to be great. Um, And I think we've, we have some, we have some writing. So as you say, it's, I believe rating systems are all about people learning the context. Um, And again, what does a four star mean? What does a 10, what does a 8.7 mean? What does a 6.7 mean? Um, They all, they all exist sort of in a context. And what we've done in the infatuation is give people a sense of like what that, what those ratings mean in our mind. Um, You know, we'll often say something like an 8.0 is sort of that restaurant that we believe is worth traveling for, uh, get on the subway, like, you know, go out of your neighborhood to go here, it's really worth the effort to sort of travel here, um, and we often say that in the reviews that are above a certain rating, we say, like, this is, you know, this is, like, this is really worth traveling to, whether it's, whether it's close or far, um, So yeah, I think it's, I think it's all about context. As you said, like people learned what a 28 was, people learned what a seven is. Um, As long as you sort of have that one system and uh, stick to it for a while, then you're, uh, I think the audience figures it out
3: yeah no i definitely when i was looking at the infatuation you could go to restaurants that you know well and see what they were rated and you'd be like oh okay well i know that's a great place and it got this rating so that but you you know you're right you can you can self-norm and adjust it and yeah i think that's that that's absolutely true
4: everything's about context oftentimes even you know when we're doing infatuation ratings it's like what's the you know you often we say like how do we rate this place well what are other you know Italian restaurants in this neighborhood? What, where does it fall? Where do we believe it sort of falls on the line up there? So that's a lot of the way we think about it is that everything is everything is contextual from the situation you might need it in to, to the readings.
3: All right. So were you a Zagat fan back in the day? What do you hope its revival holds in store? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know. We'll share your thoughts with Hillary and her team as she was also soliciting input on how they should cover things. So send it our way. We'll pass it on. After the break, Hillary's going to reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back.
2: When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have but you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see?
3: From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Hillary, you're up. What's your Julia Moment?
4: Um, so I was thinking about this, and I decided that it's right now, because I'm just doing the most home cooking that I've ever done, frankly. Um <laughs> And, um, you know, I certainly, um, in, in, in inspired. you know, in, in talking to you, I, I was thinking that I ought to look up, um, a Julia recipe and I was thinking maybe that I would, uh, roast a chicken, which, um, you know, I've, I've done, certainly know how to do, but, um, uh, could certainly use some tips, um, and yeah, I think it's like a moment for a lot of people where people are really getting inspired to to learn how to cook. If if nothing else, certainly, um, I've certainly been, been doing takeout and delivery, but also um, balancing that with with home cooking. And um, so so I think I think right now is my Julia moment.
3: I think that's perfect, and and yes, I think what what, what the foundation's whole purpose and in, in following Julia's legacy and what Julia advocated is that value of cooking at at whatever level. And I think also the point that a lot of our guests late late lately have been making, even with their cookbooks, is it's not about trying to be a restaurant chef at home. It's just trying to make fresh food that you enjoy and for nourishing and 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 sharing with other people is 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 the message and and i think i mean it's kind of a strange benefit of what we're going through and as long as there continues to be food available in some ways we're we're all eating better at home
4: certainly and i think being really thoughtful about it you know in terms of knowing that you you might you know not going to be visiting the store every day or um trying to be i think you know people are are having to be mindful make sure that they're not hoarding um be be thoughtful about their choices um, do you have a, do you have a recommendation on another Julia recipe I should
3: try? Well, I mean, I one? think, well, the classic one that's also maybe, you know, kind of, um, for chocoholics is her renda Saba chocolate cake. That one's a favorite. And it's actually not that super difficult, but it's certainly very, um, sustaining. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, roast chicken is about the most classic, you know, French dish you can do. And, and actually like. The process of cooking—you don't need to be a chef to roast a chicken. The biggest thing with roasting a chicken right is the tips of knowing when it's done and that sort of thing. It's almost like—I mean, it's not really technique-driven, but that's, I think, the thing people find the hardest, which is like— how do I know and how do I do it? And I think Julia's recipes and stuff are are full of instruction. So whether you go to mastering or the way to cook. So, and I also think like to roast, roast chicken is like almost every classically trained French chef's favorite. If you ask, you know, people love to ask the, like, what's your deathbed food, which is a, a terrible question <laughs> these days, but um, it's almost always roast chicken. So I think, um, that's a good one. I was trying to think what Joya used to eat because I, I have had people say that they were semi-disappointed when they went to Julia's for dinner because she was not doing like an elaborate menu on her show. She was doing something like very simple, straightforward, but usually, you know, a great chicken or produce from her garden or someone else's garden. So I, I, I think it's also the spirit of, you know, making the effort but not trying to Stress yourself out or or do too much, and also being as you said, being thoughtful. Like we made a carrot cake this weekend, and actually that was not my first idea. I can't remember what I wanted to do first. Oh, I was actually going to do um, a spice bread, but I can't remember. We were missing some key ingredient um, that I knew I wasn't going to be able to go out and get. And my wife was like, "Oh, well, we have tons of carrots. Why don't we do carrot cake?" And at first, it took me like I'll admit, like two minutes to shift gears but i think in these times to be thoughtful and be like what do we have and what can we make with it and that's why that's when you know having a collection of cookbooks or subscribing to or not subscribing or just looking online can be really really useful and certainly what we have available at our digital fingertips these days is you know massive compared to the past
4: certainly yeah well, I'll report back on the chicken.
3: <laughs> yes. Well, well, and we'd be happy to collaborate too if if you if if you want to do. We'll figure out some Julia stuff that might might be a fit. Well, thanks for joining us, Hillary.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
3: And thanks everyone for listening. Look for your hometown or favorite city on the infatuation, and for even more crowdsourced information and restaurant guides and stories, head to zagot.com. For breaking news and insights, it's at infatuation and at Zagat, Z-A-G-A-T, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want to get to know Hillary better, she's at H-R-E-I-N-S on Instagram and Twitter. Keep up with us and what we're doing to try to help the food world cope with the COVID-19 pandemic. It's at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child, J-C-F, and I'm at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen.
2: This program is powered by Simplecast.
3: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member.